0: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Drunk Book Club, where we watch- nope, where we read books that you may have heard of, but probably didn't read. I doubt you've heard of this one. Yeah, I I know we promised that we would be doing Chrome next time, but here's the thing. We were doing research for the uh, Mainland podcast, and shit got wild. I'm Rye, and with me as always is Dorothy. Hello! And instead of the gay robot dildo book, which we are still going to read, don't worry, we read the novelization of Reanimator from 1987. 1977? I said eighty seven, didn't I? Did I words bad? Anyway, um, while we're here, we do need to uh to thank one of Rice fans. We actually, this is um actually a fairly difficult book to get a hold of because it's a pulp novelization of a B horror movie. So not very many, it, there wasn't really any attempt made to preserve and, and do subsequent printing. So when it went out of print, there were just a limited number of copies and it's made on real cheap pulp paper. So there's not very many left. And uh, the ones that are left, um, you know, since the fandom started getting really interested in them in the last few years, they usually go for around $75 yep. in, uh, in decent condition. So, we have two. Uh, one that Sean got for Dorothy as a present, and one which, um, Gerbil Fluff on Twitter very kindly sent to me because, uh, they just had it around and didn't want it anymore and knew I'd been looking for it. So, thank you so much. We've gotten a lot of use of and, and, and enjoyment out of it. And yeah, and, um, they, they live very safely on my, uh, on my rare bookshelf next to Chrome and, um, and, uh, Killing Time. So, the first edition. I have a first edition and an expurgated edition, thank you. There's no point in only having the first edition, because then you can't compare side by side. Then you can't tell people why it's special when they ask why you have a Star Trek novel on your shelf. Yeah, and it's um, it's not a good book, but it is very interesting. It was written by Jeff Rovin, who wrote a couple of movie novelizations in the 80s. Um, he also did uh, the April Fool's Day novelization. Sean, from the main podcast, actually already knew his name because he wrote some very early primitive video game guides, like how to win this game, how to win that game, before Prima was even a thing. Yeah, it seems like he he's made quite a bit of money doing hack work, not in the colloquial sense of hack, but in the traditional sense of you know, doing output as assigned by a studio rather than as a passion project. Except this novel qualifies for both definitions of hack work, if oh. we're being honest. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I tried to give these things a certain amount of of leeway, be, being what they are, and how, you know, secondhand it is when you come to the creative process, but um, this is bad. Yeah, and, and we'll get into that a lot. I think up front we should talk about how a lot of the fandom was really um enthusiastic about this when it was sort of rediscovered by the Tumblr fandom a couple years ago mm-hmm. specifically because there is explicit discussion around queerness and you know Herb's queer coding has always you know existed existed and been very important to large swaths of the fandom yeah uh, but despite Bride of Rien- uh despite Bride of Frankenstein being famously directed by a gay man and liberally coded as such, Herbert West is the most queer-coded mad scientist of all time. <laughs> so a lot of people were really enthusiastic about that and talked about that, and yes, but. Yeah, very much yes, but. Like, yes, the queer coding is up to 12, and this book acknowledges that it takes place in the 80s, i.e. that the AIDS crisis exists, but it does so in, like, the shittiest straight dude writer way possible. Um, There's also just a lot of lol sexism and really gross objectification and misogyny present. Again, up to 11. Right, because those things are present in the original text. Yeah, but this book sort of wallows around in uh, Hill's perspective Mm -hmm. a lot. Don't don't worry, we'll give you a tiny bitty primer for if you haven't seen the movie. Although, if you haven't seen the movie, I don't know why you're listening to this. (laughs) Yeah there there's also just a lot of casual bullshit like mm-hmm. some casual racism a lot of casual misogyny uh, fat phobia Eep. and uh, that good old homophobia yep so all of that is there in this book uh, and we're going to get into it but first what are we drinking what are we drinking, Bry? Well, I was drinking a mountain ale to start, which is definitely not a Mountain Dew yeah, beer. Not your father's mountain ale. It's pretty good, and I say that as somebody who cannot stomach Mountain Dew. Yeah, it it, it is a nice, bright, glowing, bright green, energizing drink. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of nice. It's it's sweet, but not as, like, sickeningly like, clergy as real Mountain Dew. I have, of course, been... Uh, disallowed from drinking more of that until we're done recording so I am sipping on a traditional Moscato. I don't (laughs) remember what blend this is. It's very light. I was working from a somewhat limited stash of ingredients uh, to come up with a nice green cocktail for the occasion. Normally I'd probably be using gin and also a little bit of riboflavin to make a black light active cocktail but that's not what I'm drinking right now. Right now I uh, have something I just threw together Which is apple pucker, hypnotic, vodka, and lemon sour. Makes a nice bright green. It's very cute. Yeah, quite tart, but with a nice uh, tropical fruit flavor from the hypnotic. It's nice. I can drink it, and I can't drink shit. (laughs) It it definitely covers up the alcohol taste. So. That's my number one requirement for alcoholic beverages. How did you know? Makes it extremely dangerous. (laughs) In case you didn't hear the uh, podcast we did about the film, which we also did, don't worry, it's down in the show notes if you missed it. This is a, a very dear movie to both of us. It It is rife with some 80s bullshit, including um some boy reanimator never met a woman it didn't hate. But also, these movies are campy and glorious and Herbert oh. West. One more warning. Animal mutilation. Oh, yeah. A lot of- um, the- And corpse desecration. Uh-huh. The-, the animal mutilation is honestly the only really unexpected thing in this book. Yeah. In addition to the expected animal mutilation. There are thing- uh Going into this book, there are things from the movie that kind of go by quickly that the book has time to wallow in. Yeah. Th- there's also the issue that I- th- Given the way this book- operates it almost feels like he was, oper- he was working from a tv cut because it feels like certain chunks of the main narrative have been truncated but the whole psychic powers plotline has been inserted back in kind of sort of but not in the most interesting ways yeah it's weird it's an extremely uneven like it's it's very unclear what he was working from down yeah. to simple details like he describes the uh reagent serum as being yellowish in color like as lit by phosphorus when it's uh, it's green it's Shit's very green. very green like that's why we're drinking green drinks mm-hmm. that's the entire reason that dynamite comics based their shitty attempts to get around reanimator copyright on was that their reagent for the comics is not green it's yellowy <laughs> that's how they got away with being a dick to brian usna i see you dynamite and i have the receipts so yeah, it's it's this is going to be kind of an odd one because we are going to be frequently referring to, and so this is different than that. This is one to either either listen to our other podcast about the movie or watch the movie uh, again, because this is a novelization. A lot of the interest in talking about it is talking about its differences from the film because it's also yeah. just not very good as a standalone novel it's worse as a standalone novel than the original short stories were as a serialized set of stories. Let's put it that way. Not as much racism, but still still there. Oh, but this was also uh, made before the reanimator sequel. Mm -hmm. So this ends definitively on certain assumptions that completely recontextualize the story. Once they're turned on their head, when, when the second comes out. Herbert West has the uh, cockroach-like qualities of a serial, uh, of, of a slasher killer. But but much cuter. Much more adorable. He's so small and pocket-sized. And will still kill you. Oh, absolutely. But only for science. The weirdest thing is, honestly, that, that the subtitling fuck-up is still in there. But we'll get We'll there. get there. A sort of potted version of the plot, <laughs> in case, for God knows what reason, you've decided to come along anyway, is that... Dan Kane is a college student at Miskatonic University. He's allegedly Miskatonic's best and brightest. He wants to be an emergency doctor, even though he's just too darn compassionate and he can't stand to let people die and it's fucking up his efficacy as a doctor. And so he needs a roommate. He gets a roommate. He's dating the dean's daughter. She is beautiful and exists. Poor Meg. (sighs) Yeah. So he gets a roommate in, in the form of the mysterious transfer student, Herbert West, who has... And Dan Kane sex haver flashes his dick at the, the transfer student. <laughs> and Herbert is allegedly working on experiments to, you know, bring the dead back to life. And he did just explode his his old teacher's eyeballs. Well, yes, but Dan doesn't know that. But, I mean, that is where Herbert's coming from here. Yes, he he's... Not so much fled Switzerland as casually strolled with the invitation to never come back. I, I mean, this would be right after he uh, got off of the cannibal zombie island where he was naked all the time and thought about um Matahariing his way out, right? God, that comic is a fucking delight. <laughs> it's just so fucking beautiful. Official comics are a trip. Mm-hmm. But so Dan gets pulled into... Helping Herbert with his experiments, which re- snowballs very quickly into the dean dying and being brought back to life, and the evil professor who plagiarized uh, Herbert's mentor. And also has a weird psychosexual obsession with Dan Cain, sex havers, sex having girlfriend. He tries to steal Herbert's research, gets killed, gets brought back to life because, because Herbert has zero impulse control. Absolutely none. And then becomes a very dangerous zombie, and all of this ends in a in a showdown in the morgue. And then Herbert West dies, definitely for real, super dead. And Dan takes on the mantle of the reanimator. Hence, or does he? Yeah. Again, these are things that thematically work when you've got the one story, but as soon as there are sequels, it goes right out the window. And it is, uh, as we mentioned in passing, based on a series of six Lovecraft short stories that he wrote for a serialized weird fiction magazine. Basically to pay the bills, and he fucking hated them. Which is why, fuck you, I these are my favorites. Uh-huh. Fuck I'm you, I'm glad Halle. that you don't like the ones I like. You racist piece of shit. I hope you're spinning in your grave. Also, Herbert is gay. I, I mean, I think he knew that. That's true. I mean, I think that was fairly integral to Herbert's monstrosity. So the the novel is- It makes it's some choices. I- the number one My thing, favorite thing the number one thing I do as an editor when I make a first pass through a manuscript is start making notes about fucking head hopping, which is this thing where you're, where the point of view kind of meanders what? through the thoughts of various characters rather than just staying with one character's experience. This is not quite the same thing as third person omniscience. No. This is not, like, justifiable as third-person omniscient because it'll lock into one perspective and then, with no transition, just float into another one. Yep, there aren't ends of scenes. There's no, like, we, we don't step out to, like, a broad... There's not a global narrator. Yeah. If you would like more of Dorothy's angry uh, thoughts on on third-person omniscient, I believe it was... I believe it was the Da Vinci Code episode, was it? I think so. I'll, I'll link it in uh, – I'll find out. I don't know. I was drunk at the time. It's – Drunk on the blood of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, third-person omniscient is either, like, a very high-level tool that you that you have to craft a specific narrator for, like Lemony Snicket. Or a fairly primitive tool that comes from before the novel form was really solidified right. as a stylistic thing where we as you know a people were not really thinking so much in our construction of these stories of how perspective works and in modern day and I have read a lot of very old novels it's not fun they're very annoying and in modern day, and I, I can say pretty definitively, even in the 80s when he would have been writing this, it is the tool of inexperienced writers who want to convey an emotion, but aren't sure how to do it with the character they started out in the of PO, uh, the point of view as. So they just hop. Because, they- you know, somebody's having a feeling, but maybe the, the character you're writing from is a meathead or is looking the other direction, or would otherwise not be able to interpret what... Mm-hmm. So you just wander over, and now all of a sudden we're we're hearing Susan's thoughts about the situation, whether or not we will ever see Susan again. Nope, you're not Terry Pratchett, all of you out there. Stop it. Again, very high level tool, like good Terry Pratchett, not color of magic Terry Pratchett. On a on a sheer prose level, this is this is very meandering and head hoppy. It'll just within a scene switch within paragraphs from one character to the next. I mean, in terms of prose, syntactically, it's competent. Yeah, I mean, the sentences are legible. The sentences are legible. The construction is generally inoffensive in those terms. It's decently copy-edited. There's not a lot of uh, typographical errors. There's although, one. Although there is – well, I-, I wouldn't call that a typographical error, though. No, there's one. There's an it's that has a- an apostrophe where it shouldn't be there, and I was mortally offended. But, like, one, though. Yeah. And there is the one time that he writes Cain when he clearly meant to write West, which like renders the scene heartwarming but confusing. Yeah, <laughs> just wants you to all to reimagine the pencil scene. Except all of a sudden Dan is jumping to Herbert's defense for no reason. But it's it's a rather charming little book. It has um you know those yellow tinted uh, page edges and everything. It, it looks like an old '60s pulp that you would find at a used bookstore. Yeah, it, it's cute. It's very nice. I I enjoy the copies we have. The print is extremely large, so it's 220 pages, but But you can finish it. it? Like, you can finish this in a couple hours. I I read it about medium speed. I I read very quickly, so if I'm not taking a pause to screen cap something and yell about it, I, I go through it. But otherwise. It's also not consistent in how it, you know, the, the other thing you can do with several point of views is you can cycle through them. And it's not consistent with that either. No, I mean, the Game of Thrones, this ain't where one person gets a chapter and then we just rotate through everybody. Mm-mm. You know who it does spend just an upsetting amount of time with? Who's that? Carl Hill, the antagonist. And you know how, in the movie, he's just a real sleaze of a person, but you can see how much David Gale, the actor, is enjoying himself? David Gale's not fucking here! No, it's just Hill, and there's a lot more of him than in the movie, and And it's it's upsetting. And it's just Roven wanting us to know how often Hill gets his greasy fuck on. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where you look at it on its face, and it's like, well, we need to know how evil the villain is so we can really root against him. But but then it's like, hmm. Mm. We're spending an awful lot of time with him. And and we're just soaking in the way he thinks about women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of, like, his misogyny specifically. And it's just really brutal misogyny where he's setting mental traps for women that there's no way syntactically the things he's saying would result in the responses he wants. So he gets to gleefully think about how stupid she is for falling for these verbal traps and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just... An extremely realistic look at a condescending misogynist. Yeah, we have met this man. Everyone has met this guy. Mm-hmm. And and it's really... We didn't need as many chapters as we spend inside him. Yeah, because, like, it, it's acceptable... When you, in the early, I swear to God, this book was written in stages chronologically. Yeah, no, it's like it was sent off to the printer in stages to the point where he couldn't refer back to his previous work because there are just major disjunctions. And also with the sense- In continuity, in people's backstories. Mm -hmm. Well, also just within the sense that it it seemed like he thought starting out that he would have more time because there's an early chapter where you see Hill being a shit to an undergrad that he slept with who's- work he's profiting off of and it's like okay fine this no no works. i thought that was the reporter who who wrote the article about his stupid drill right yes yeah but also he's he's sleeping with a bunch of undergrads and stuff like that mm-hmm. and so it's you know it's skeezy but as an introductory ski scene to this guy is a skis it works um but then they don't proceed to do a bunch we don't get a bunch of extra scenes with other characters and it's the book doesn't move on at that pace. Yeah, we don't get this many extra scenes with, say, Meg. Yeah. We only get the Meg scenes that are organic to the film, so there's no- the the only character who's plumped out is Hill. And there's a weird amount of time dedicated to, like, explaining for him. Like, there's this weird thing in there about how he also built on Ubers. Well, also about his soup loins. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently Meg's mouth Turns his loins to soup. And I want to (laughs) know- What the fuck does that mean? Why didn't anybody tell her about her superpowers? She could have been rid of this man years ago. superpowers? That's the worst thing you've ever said. You said said it, to me. No. Okay, bye. (laughs) I leave you to it. Oh. Oh, why? Yeah, the the stuff about- about, uh, Because, you know, he stole Gruber's research, but the book takes a moment- a detour to be like well also he improved and expanded on a bunch of kruber's basic theories so really he did do real science type work why But, but but also something something he fried somebody's brain but that was fine but that was fine but but also he was sleeping with them so that was an ethics violation it just really wants you to know that he's getting his fuck on and then that he's not just an incel who's sitting around staring at Meg. No, no, he's fucking all these women and also staring at Meg. Mm-hmm. And then at the uh, morgue scene at the end, there's just this long, detailed fantasy of what he'd do once he is the unquestioned ruler of the world. There's also just a very strange change to, to the language around him that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. But it's a weird move to the metaphysical, because in the film... He was uh, he was trying to find the location of the will in the brain, which is why ultimately he's um, later able to use his knowledge of that to control the other zombies because he can subsume their will. Sure, But like in context, it makes no, yeah, it makes as much sense as the rest of the science in this film. Please go on. Whereas in the book, he's not looking for the, the source of the will in the brain. He's looking for the location of the soul in the brain. And Which yet, is a qualitatively different thing. Number one, it's metaphysical in a way that, you know. The will is at least loosely scientific. Yeah, and, and has to do with just, like, physical volition. Whereas the soul is a qualitatively different thing. And I'm not clear on why Roven made that change. Because it makes it much sillier sounding. And his, and his ability to overpower it. Maybe theoretically could sound spookier, but in practice? It's very silly. It just makes it make less sense that he's then able to control bodies. Well, in the one time he does go into like detail writing about, like talking about Halsey and the fact that Halsey remembers Meg after he's brought back to life, he talks about it as like a collection of synaptic nerves or whatever in his cerebral cortex, which is very scientifically will oriented, but he's still couching it in language of soul. Which which is very strange. Like, could in a better book with more time be developed out into this- like, this juxtaposition of a character's, like, faith? But there's no indication that he has any faith in anything other than that. Or, Or that he's trying to prove- Except that time he spent in India. Oh my god. You know how- So, if you listen to our other podcast, you may have heard about the axed subplot from the film where- Hill has hypnosis powers that come and go as the plot demands and were originally part of at least a semi-cohesive subplot. Yeah, he got those by visiting India, I presume. Yeah, in this, there was no explanation in the original, and I'm fine with that. Yes, yeah, it's Arkham. It's the alternative here. Spooky science bullshit that's not actually science, because all of this is magic. But no, Rovan needs to specify mm-hmm. that Hill just went to India. I assume on his round trip home, he also stopped by I and visited into, Tilda Swinton. I wonder if he ran into Meg's mom in India. Oh my god! Considering that she apparently ran off to work for the Peace Corps. Yeah, there are some basic continuity errors. Not like, and I mean, we have watched this movie a lot, and arguably have paid more attention to minutia than a lot of people have. Except but this guy hasn't read his own book, <laughs> uh huh, and paid attention to it. There are basic changes from the movie, like. It's kind of a big deal that Meg's mom died when she was young. That's why her dad has this creepy... Controlling... ...thing, is that he? she basically mothered him after her mom died. But he, here in the book, she left him when Megan was nine. Her, her mom just ran off to, to be a do-gooder in the slums of the third world. Yep. Which, um... It's not <sighs> great... Or, like, Dan's backstory. He oh. is somehow simultaneously has a great relationship with his dad, mm-hmm. a storefront lawyer in Washington, D.C., who always fights for the little guy and protects people, and that's what motivates Dan to uh, to want to be a doctor and help people. But also, later when Meg is talking to him... ...was raised by a spinster aunt after his parents died in a car crash when he was an infant. And he never saw anybody die after that, and that's why he takes death so hard. So even when Roven is making a backstory for characters who don't canonically have one, he can't keep it consistent. Um, Herbert West is Canadian. Bullshit. That boy is a Southern Baptist. You've met enough Southern Baptists at this point that you agree with me? Yes. <laughs> and I'm terrified. <laughs> Herbert has precisely no chill, let's face it. Well, he he has that uncanny ability to very politely insult people. Yep. And also, he makes Lazarus puns on his corpse tags. Yep. It's great. It's excellent. This boy was brought up in the Bible Belt and is bitter about it. <laughs> but no, he, he's Canadian, um, and he murdered his parents for being annoying. No, they died in a chemical fire. Yes, he murdered his parents for being annoying. There's some autism coding. Oh, yeah, there is. He, he's, mm. like, hypersensitive to sound. Which doesn't ultimately go anywhere. Like, it, they bring it up during uh, the opening scene with Gruber and Gruber's death, but then later when you would expect it to come up. There, there's some real good gore there and almost nowhere else. Nope, nothing else is very gory. The description of... of- Hill's head in the morgue scene is pretty good. Like, talking yeah. about how his tent- tongue is all puffy and distended and he smells, yeah. that's pretty good. But mostly Gruber's death is the only really good gore. Mm-hmm. Like, like when when his stomach acids are eating through his guts and stuff. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Although, counterpoint, the morgue scene does have Hill attacking Dan with exploding organs. <laughs> As you do. That's how he keeps him from rescuing Herbert, just exploding (laughs) organ bombs. His kidneys, he can just command his kidneys to explode. (laughs) It's the best thing I've ever heard. It's a beautiful piece of prose. But but yeah, so there's some autism coding for Herbert that's unfortunate. Deeply. Because, like, not only is it very, oh, well, he's the... This b- He's this weird monster. Yeah, th- well, this book is weirdly dedicated to you know spending a lot of time with Hill. It's also very unkind in its description of Herbert, like act, and it actively, after the first couple bits that are necessary to physically get Herbert to Arkham, extremely unwilling to dip into his head. Like that, there's a sense that that there's something unwholesome about being in this character's head mm-hmm. and, and there'll just be like bits tossed off where like you know he, his small little eyes glinting and those like have you seen this boy combs you could describe combs a lot of ways you could almost stretch to beady eyes but mm-hmm. his eyes aren't small no and he's like, that that's just a blatant falsehood he's a precious boy herbert is terrible he is terrible. He's terrible. He's a wretched little misogynist. Let's be upfront about that now. Yes. He is a terrible little man. He's awful. I love him. Also true. And the autism coding is especially unfortunate because it's it's not even carried through. Like, the uh, he, he talks about having, you know, noise, sensitivity to noise, but that doesn't come through in scenes like when, when he's dealing with the reanimated cat where there's a lot of noise happening. And he... Doesn't react to it because that scene happens in the movie, so we can't, I guess, write new things for it. And he also talks to himself, and that's why his parents sent him to therapy. So he murdered them. That's subtext. No, it's pretty clear. It had been child's play. Literally. (laughs) Direct quote. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) Plausibly deniable. Okay, y- you know what? There is an alternative explanation. Maybe Chucky just fucking showed up. <laughs> Maybe he got a present of a good guy doll, and that's how Herbert <laughs> knows that it is possible to survive death. Yeah, because of the connection to uh, to the Puppet Master movies. Clearly, that's got what's going on with Chucky. That is a uh, that is a crazy crackpot theory for another day. <clears throat> Should we talk about the queer coding? Because like I feel like that's what people are here for. I feel like we should, but, but also just Dan, though. Oh, we can talk about Dan, but I feel like Dan deserves his own section. Because holy shit. Because <laughs> once we get into talking about Dan, I feel like that's going to lead us into the meatier stuff about the thematic weirdness. So we might as well start with the queer coding. The fairly minor element of the story that everybody is actually here to hear about. And then we'll come back to the whole, um... The, to the actual homophobia after Dan, because the 80s. Oh boy, the 80s. Uh, yeah, so... Herbert is gay. Uh, again, it's not just short of actually saying it in this one, but they get much closer. The, the entire history of this character is just a slow half-life towards saying that he's gay. Because here there's, there's a lot of itsy-bitsy little bits of coding, um, certain ways that he's described... That are very dog whistly terms. There's a very telling scene where Herbert, up till now, has has talked about how he's got no problems with with lying, or sorry, he he, has, he doesn't like lying. He doesn't like lying, but but he, but he will fucking rules lawyer his way around a, a deception. Yes. If there's any way that he can give a technical truth, he does it. And he's been doing that all throughout the book and all throughout the very scene it comes in. And then a detective who's investigating Halsey's weird behavior and and the whole shenanigans in the The morgue. Zombieism. Yeah. Yeah, that. Well, who literally just showed up at the morgue, like, five minutes after shit went down. Those cops are bored and on call. (laughs) Clearly. He asks directly if, if Herb or Dan are gay. And um, Dan denies it, and He's Herbert- He's like, shh! I'm Her- engaged. Herbert looks at his shoes, and I died in my his heart. shoes, which he has on, because God damn it, Jeffrey Combs did that. Bless him and his business. Twelve seconds. My son. There, there. He's a terrible boy, but- He's extremely terrible and extremely gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the coding is super strong. There is a point at which- Like a- the existence of gayness is discussed in this, which for, you know, Yes, it is discussed. Yes. Which, you know, for a genre work in the 80s is pretty noticeable. It, it sticks out. That is not to say that this is a good thing. Yeah, no, this is not, like, This is not representation. representation. Like, Herbert is definitely one of them, their rec- uh, reclaimed queer monsters, as it were. But, like, uh, no, there this is not this is not the way. It's not good. There's this there's a scene where, you know, Meg is talking about how she has a bad feeling about him and, and there's and the word she chooses is virulent in the eighties. Something about despite Just the fact that he's very clean, something about him seems virulent. Something that would contaminate people he associates with. Mm-hmm. I see you and your dog and it's whistles. It's weird because Meg is generally quite sympathetic everywhere else, but in this scene, she just... Yeah, I mean, she does hate Herbert, but that's a low place to go. Right, I mean, that's perfectly reasonable, frankly. Herbert is a creepy creep who hates her. Yeah, you know, he started it. She tried to be friendly, and he opened fire. Because he's one of those gays. Again, he was never a good example of a gay character. (laughs) It's just that he's ours. (laughs) There's another, oh, there's another really weird piece of coding, too. That when Dan's thinking about how uh, much he pities him for being jealous of Meg. Yeah, that, too. I, I think I was thinking of the one where, you know, Meg is talking about how there's something weird about Herbert. And Dan is like, yeah, so what if he's cracked? And then th- this is linked in the same conversation where Meg is talking about how Hill is a creepy perv who is stalking her. Right. And then she says something like, and Herbert's probably a pervert, too. Uh-huh. It's not great. And you know who else isn't great? Dan. Dan. So, Dan. So, so, so here's the thing Dan's a bad doctor. Dan's always been a bad doctor. Well, yes, but people fight us on this, so I feel like we need to hammer the point home. Dan wants to be specifically an emergency room doctor. That's one where every minute counts. And every time you're spent trying to bring back a patient who isn't going to make it, that's, a, that's time that somebody else is dying because you wasted it. Yeah, so learning to make the call is as important as learning how to save people. So, like, I, I had to learn to triage people. I, I'm, I'm not a medical professional, but I did have to take a class where a huge component of it was learning how to triage people in an emergency situation. And Dan just cannot let go. Which makes him, yeah, a very compassionate person and also a terrible doctor. A real shitty doctor. This is the one female character who becomes more sympathetic. Mm-hmm. Dr. I have Heron. feelings about this woman. Dr. Heron, the 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 mean, scary lady from the movie. Played by Stuart Gordon's wife. Yep. There's this whole weird thing where, where the um, woman who dies in the first scene, um, jiggly boobs, who apparently, this is true, hid dildos all over the set. That's magnificent. I salute her. Uh, With a dildo? Yes. I give her a ten-dildo salute. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But there's this weird thing where Roven has decided to make her body and its treatment a through line through the whole film, about the issue of dignity in medical treatment and medical use of bodies after their death. Which is weird, because she donated her body to science. So, using it for those purposes is, in fact, quite respectful. Mm-hmm. Because she dies, and then her body is the one who gets lobotomized during the pencil scene. And then Herbert steals her brain, and... Is that the end of it? I don't think she shows up in the final morgue scene. I, I, yeah, it stops after that, just like the references to the chemical uh, factory stop after that. So I think that's a fairly clean division between the first and second halves of the manuscript. <laughs> and when they were being worked on. Because the entire subplot about the uh, chemical plants and the fact that the school is only five years old. Also kind of... Wither away. Yeah, the, those all. It feels like Roven was trying to develop a couple of subplots and make them into something else, and then for the second half, he settled on a totally different subplot that we will get to. Yep, uh, and also the pacing of this book is just weird as shit because Rufus, the the famous scene with uh, Rufus being reanimated, Dan's cat, happens about halfway through the book, and it also at that point makes no sense why Dan would find that appalling. And that's the end of the first act in the movie. Yeah, but so this book feels like it sh- like the second half of it should have been about twice as long. It definitely does because there are all these dangly bits of, of subplot. <laughs> <self-plot. laughs> I didn't want to think about that. Why? <laughs> but so Dan, we we've already talked about how his backstory changes from one half of the book to the other. It sure does. Who is he? What I I just have decided to assume that he tells everybody a different version of his backstory, Joker style. His backstory is multiple choice. And I back this up with the fact that in this book, but can I point out that, um, that Catherine would clearly be the Harley Quinn of this version. How dare you? I mean, she deserves, well, so did Harley. Okay, fine. She is a very gifted (laughs) shrink who, uh, How dare you do this to me? Who, After interacting with a a very ill patient. (laughs) How dare you? Sorry, we're talking about From Beyond here. Which did not get a novelization, which is very upsetting to me. The novelization would be porn and it would be amazing. Exactly. Maybe we'd finally get the threesome that the movie should have had. And somebody would eat somebody else's head. Yeah, probably during the threesome. Yeah, totally. Like. Praying Mantis style. Uh-huh. Because that movie is fucked up, and also I love it. hmm But, yeah, Dan is a nascent serial killer in this book. Like, seriously, what the fuck? You're just cruising along through the early parts of the book, and it, like, mentions some weird stuff. Like, the reason in this book that Dan needs a roommate mm-hmm. is because he had a roommate, and it's described in the weirdest way possible. His roommate was a rich dude who... Spent lavishly on the both of them, and then discovered that actually his- He did not want to medical school. No, he wanted to go to New York and be a dancer. In, in, in the 80s. And so now Dan is stuck with the rent for a house he can't afford. So Dan was a sugar baby, but apparently he's just got a knack for finding these gay dudes who don't even ask him to blow them. I don't know how he does it. I don't know. But, like, so then he finds Herbert, who, another very gay dude, who apparently stuffs dollar bills into the toilet paper after he uses some. Just <laughs> said, Charming, did Just bizarre. Herbert, I love you. You're a little shit. I pay for everything, apparently. <laughs> it's very good. Y- you know, I'm just imagining him uh, after eating some fruit that was in the bowl on the table. How much could it cost? <laughs> Ten dollars. <laughs> Apparently, the the explanation given for his infamous wad of cash in the book is that he inherited all, Gruber's he, estate, and also he set his parents on fire and inherited their money. Mm-hmm. There was insurance involved, of because course. we all know that's how insurance works. Absolutely, I'm surprised that he has Gruber's estate. Honestly, because as we know, Gruber's daughter blamed him for and, her father's death, and then yes, but but I mean, she did go mad after they were naked on that island together. That's true. Because she saw Herbert West's eight pack. <laughs> Herbert West is shredded. <laughs> I, I reckon, so like Dan Kane is going around Arkham, rooming with dudes, <laughs> who are not having off than sex him. with him, it being extremely hetero with his girlfriend. But you know, this house had one problem when he moved in with with this nice boy who very cleverly got out of dodge. Bats. It had a bat infestation. So, you know, you're reading along, you think, that's, that's a spooky detail because it's spooky Arkham, okay. Mm-hmm. And then you get to something much worse. So Dan's solution to the bat problem was to kill them <coughs> and then nail, no, to poison them, excuse me, and then nail their corpses to the outside of the house to ward off the bats. To ward off the other bats. The phrase, bats were blind but not stupid. So anyway Excuse me? Anyway, Dan What the fuck? Why are you angry about Herbert killing your cat? You already murder small animals? And nail them to things. Like this is this is some Johnny the homicidal maniac shit. This is some nail bunny shit up in here. Like what the fuck, Dan? You nailed them to the outside of your house. That took effort. That took premeditation. And also, apparently, Meg never noticed the rotting, mummifying bat corpses on the outside of the house, because after Rufus dies, she reflects that, like, some gentle part of Dan that she always valued is gone now. Right. So, like... <laughs> Meg, I think it's good that you got out now, because he's going to kill you someday. He does. Yes, but he brings her back, so it's fine. Yeah, but then he presumably killed her again, given the heart. Yep. Oh god, the, trying to force this into continuity with Bride is something. It's hilarious. Because at the end of this book... Dan uh, just steals her corpse. Yep, yeah, they just get out of Dodge. He just fucking steals a corpse from the hospital. And never is seen again. And, and just- the cops don't find them. Because oh yeah, there are cops in this universe. Yep, the worst cops. You know, there, there's never been an unsolved murder in Arkham... In the last 25 years. So what th- they're telling us is that these people are shit at finding bodies. Mm-hmm. Technically, it's not a murder if they turn into a living goo. That's true. Or a fish man. Or, like, a plant person. That's, That's true. not death. So technically, it's uh, not their problem. The Arkham police have, have, must have just gotten very good at justifying a lot of things as not technically murder. That's the only solution. <laughs> Look, if there's no body, there's no crime. That's not what corpus delicti means! There's no body. (laughs) Either that, or they've just clocked off all the crimes like this one, where they run across a bunch of dead bodies, and then the the detective is like, man, I hope we never find that Dan Kane guy and the corpse he stole. Maybe there are some mysteries I just don't want solved.
1: Like, you're a shitty
0: cop! So, round about the time um, that Dean Halsey is being murdered,
1: and, and then Me-
0: unmurdered, uh, Meg wanders through the hospital and sees a janitor named Vinnie Papa. That two lasts pages Richard- later, <laughs> Detective Vinnie Papa walks in. That was a hectic day for manuscript submissions. <laughs> like, here's my treatment. Yeah, we'll need the rest in t- in uh, three weeks. Oh shit! I thought I had at least a month and a half. Okay. <laughs> Yes, so the janitor takes off his hat and reveals that indeed he was a detective all along. It is not in fact explained even that much. No, it's just a continuity error, one of many. So this detective shows up and the first question he asks is, hey, either of those guys blow dudes? (laughs) Like there's multiple corpses. Yeah, Dan and Herbert are waiting to be, you know, interviewed. Processed. (laughs) After the whole morgue incident and they hear So there's like a corpse with a giant hole through its chest. Mm-hmm. Dean Halsey is missing a couple of fingers. And meanwhile they're they're through the door they can hear they can hear this detective asking Mace the security guard. So Who uh, is black? Yep. Oh boy. Oh boy. Don't worry, this book tells us that is that, that not only is he black, the man who worked this job before him was also black and also Must be a policy thing. And Mace used to be in the NFL because, of course, of course he was a sportsman athlete. But but he'd done a crime and was... Because, of course, he also went to prison. Because what else? It's so bad. Like a- and, Mace- the, and the previous guy who had this job was fired from it. And Detective Vinnie Pampa is very um, paternally proud to see Mace holding down a gainful job. It's so bad, y'all. It manages to be so bad in, like, two paragraphs. What the fuck? So to this man, Detective Vinny Papa, because yes, as I cannot say enough, that is his name. <laughs> First says m- which which makes it really funny whenever, you know, in narration, somebody just is thinking about Papa. <laughs> which they do frequently because it's common practice throughout this work to use last names in narration and first names only in address. Mm-hmm. Often the wrong type of first name. Good. Herbert keeps randomly calling Dan Daniel, even though that's not his speech pattern. At oh. all. So so Vinny Papa says to Mace, he says he says, Mavis, I says no, you never noticed anything weird. No, I don't think either of them are gay. Like, that's your second question out the gate, my dude. Gotta gotta know if there's any queers involved in this crime. And then that becomes a running thing. It's just his obsession with catching them out being gay. With some classic and classy 80s conflation of gayness and pedophilia. And also just casual mentions of AIDS and drugs. Yep. And like you'd think that this is some kind of commentary on homophobia except he is in fact talking to the like People who actually committed the crime. Like, he's not wrong. They, they did do a crime, but they they didn't give Dean Halsey gay acid. <laughs> Which is what he accuses them of. He's like, hmm, I heard you were fighting. Maybe you just dosed him with a shitload of acid and drove him mad. <laughs> There's a sex party <laughs> gone wrong. In the morgue. It looks very likely with this boy. This small, petite the dead science dead man's boy. party, if you will. <laughs> and it's it's the most mealy mouthed thing because then we have two seconds of of head hopping into into Herbert's point of view where he reflects on how you know mankind is so ugly and some people just don't deserve his serum and again it's is this is this like a moral statement or is this something we're supposed to take as Herbert's hypocrisy of being a doctor who doesn't want to equally share treatment? It can't, the world. it can't be that because Dan is also a shithead who doesn't care about anyone who dies that isn't fit and attractive. Yeah, the only reason he cares about the lady in the first scene is because she, she hot and um had like a completely unexplained heart attack while teaching a uh, an aerobics class. Not like those idiots who uh, smoke or dare to be fat. Yeah, unlike the fatties. So Dan's a shithead. Yep. Who kills animals. Yep. And like, okay, if you're going to exterminate vermin that are in your house, fine. But don't nail them to the fucking house! That is next level. You're nailing bats to your house. And again, this is one of those dangly little plot threads that you can see Roman kind of trying to justify Maybe why- like Dean is like sus- Dan is susceptible right. to Herbert's bullshit. Because he can justify his way into acts of cruelty- If he thinks that it's necessary, but it's not really developed properly. And it's also, we don't have that scene on screen. It's just mentioned casually that a while back he did this. Oh, that Daniel. It really- No wonder that nice dancer boy got the fuck out of there. It really bugged the shit out of me, though, that Herb calls him Daniel. It's weird. He calls him Dan. All throughout the movie. Consistently, Dan is what Herb calls him, because- even if you take it as pure manipulation, he very persistently uses an extremely informal diction with Dan. Mm-hmm. He doesn't call him by his last name. He doesn't call him Daniel. He's building he, he's building up a trusting repertoire, uh, repartee. There we go. Also a rapport. I word good when drunk. Once again in the morgue scene, one moment where Roven hits, Oh shit, this is an iconic line. Where and he fucks it up. Yeah. Cause, he flubs it, because you know the, the scene where Herbert holds up the Dan. Step aside. No, it's it's move. It, it is move, but or no, it might be look out. But but it's not whatever's on the page. It's, it's not like, what's on the page. we the drunk. Point. Either way, it's wrong, and that so he has him call him Dan for that one line because it's an iconic fucking line. Yeah, but then the arm pawing is completely discounted, and it goes right back to Daniel. It for the rest of the scene, but like the, the, also in that scene, Herbert is like pawing Dan's arm. Yeah, it's it's like look at my friends. It's a pretty famously homoerotic scene, and Roven is describing it as impersonal. Yeah, which you could describe a lot of things a lot of ways. But Herbert's touch is not impersonal in that scene. It it, it feels very much like he's it. It looks like he's grounding himself, like he's desperate, like and he's- like he's trying to keep Dan there with him. And keep Dan from like mentally going anywhere else, yeah, or from siding with Meg, who was also there. And then, and uh, then when Dan goes into shock, and and Herbert, you know, puts a blanket on him, and, and there kind of is a bit where he shows off that he still has the tape recorder they were Dan was useless with. Let's mm-hmm. face it, Dan is not a useful assistant. Oh yeah, it is partly a utilitarian gesture, but he's also very like kind of leaning on him and and crouch a lot over of physical him. physical contact there that is completely not necessary. Uh-huh. And Roven feels the need to add in that he's doing that just so it will look good for Mace. I don't think that would look good to Mace is the thing. Mm-hmm. The book is trying so hard in these little throwaway lines to know homo everything that Herbert does while also simultaneously queer coding him super hard. But but trying to make sure that you don't think Dan is gay. Like, right. That's the most important thing. Is, that, is to emphasize that Dan's not gay, and it's just the most jarring experience. It's really uncomfortable. It's kind of upsetting, yes. And then there's the AIDS scene. Yep, there was there were references to AIDS earlier mm-hmm. because Papa is terrible. Yep, and that sounds so funny when I say it. <sighs> I mean, this book is so full of daddy issues. It goes right along. Papa asked if we were gay. <laughs> Again, they had to, they couldn't expand on anything with Herbert, but they had space to put in an entirely new character just to be homophobic as fuck. Yep, and to ruin the ending in a subplot that goes nowhere. It ruins the ending. That's where it goes. Yeah, it ruins the tension of the ending. Basically, we'll there. but so they're on their way to to fight Hill at the morgue. Apparently, Halsey just fucking murdered a jogger.
1: We had time for that scene also.
0: And it's kind of great because Herbert, in the aftermath of the Jogger murder, is amazing. Just the bitchiest little shit. Oh, he's so good. It's one of the few scenes where he really is like top-notch in character. Where it's new dialogue and he sounds like Herbert. Because most of the old dialogue isn't actually used at all. No. It's either elided or remixed badly. Very badly. I love that scene. That's a good scene. I think we both screenshotted that scene. (laughs) Yes, I I will be including both of our live vlogs if you would like to take a look at some of the text. The illustrious prose. Yep. But in the process of, ah, shit, we don't have time, we gotta rescue Meg, who gets called Megan a fuck of a lot in this book while we're at it. Which, again, not accurate. No, Hill calls her Megan, and it's because he's old and and creepy. But... The, the way that, that Dan gets Papa to let them go is he's like, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> is that Papa has been looking for evidence of their gayness for, like, a chapter. Literal pi- li- literal pages. For a chapter. And so Dan's like, yeah, we think we might, ha- uh, we might I have... I have the AIDS. <laughs> I gotta go to the hospital and get tested for the AIDS. That's why I don't get along with Dean Halsey. And y'all it's some bad shit especially on the next page where herbert's like that was a good plan excuse Ah, oh. you go out of your way this far in the 80s to to not only label yourself but another young aspiring doctor as potentially infected <laughs> with a disease a bloodborne disease and let's face it there were people who didn't believe it was bloodborne at the time uh uh-huh. there was plenty of of false information that it was airborne, so you would never work again. Yep, neither of ya. And also, in his backstory, Herbert went to NYU, this boy done been down to the scene. Probably never had sex with anybody. Absolutely not, because he was terrified of the AIDS! Which is why, honestly, remembering the AIDS epidemic throws so much more light on his character as a character in the 80s who is queer-coded, because it explains why he would be so intensely obsessed with the idea of avoiding, averting, and reversing death, as relates to himself personally. And why he is okay with corpses, but really nervous around blood. Yeah. It makes sense. But no, he- the capper to that scene is Herbert just being like, wow, Dan, that was clever. Good thinking, bro. Fucker, you brought all this up, and then you ain't even gonna see it through? Yeah, and and, and again, Roven is just- It's just sort of playing for uh, points by pointing out, boy, isn't it terrible that that Papa is homophobic, but you're the one who put him there? Yeah, you added him to this plot in the cheapest way possible? just spliced him in badly. Extremely badly. In a way that does not inform anyone's actions. So, yeah, a lot of the scenes that get quoted, I think, among the fandom from this book really leave kind of a sour taste in context. Yeah, a lot of them get divorced from the context. And people will be pointing out, hey, this book acknowledges gayness. Well, it does. This book raises the question of, is Herbert gay? It does. It does. Badly. In the context of, is he weird and creepy and diseased? It kind of sucks. This book also felt it had time we didn't need any more herb scenes, but it did have time to make the morgue fight a lot longer. God, why? So the morgue is the morgue fight is like twice as long. The zombies are impossible to take seriously because they're named after their um, fatal injuries. So you which, have, which is how they were categorized on set, and you know everything. That that is a production detail, which again makes it very confusing. What print and how much? Direct interaction with the work and, and the creators Rovin was proceeding from. Mm. Yeah, it works fine for a script, but when you're having a very, 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 very long combat scene, it's silly to have a, char- a-, a character named Meatball. Uh-huh. And uh, Slit Wrist, and uh, Malpractice, and Burn Victim. And not THE Burn Victim, just Burn Victim did this. Mm-hmm. It's very silly. Especially since everybody in the scene is categorizing them all the same way. Because we're, of course, still head-hopping. Yep. It's it's long. At First it's silly, and then it's annoying. And it really takes you away from the drama of, hey, you know how the rape scene is terrible in the movie? It's even worse here. It's worse. It's, it's so much worse. Because there is the other moment of, like, genuinely pretty grody description of, of her – of – Hill's disembodied head from Megan's perspective. And also, his neck juices are on her thighs. Oh my god. Jen in the pan is embarrassed to be affiliated with him. Also, in the movie, it's not clear how much time has passed, so it's entirely possible that he never actually made contact, which doesn't undo how horrible that rape scene is. But it's a mental shield we can apply to ourselves. Mm-hmm. But no, no. In the book... It's very explicit that rape has happened and for a considerable amount of time. It mentions him spitting out a hair Uh, from his horrible mouth. So, you know, that's why she was screaming when she woke up. Yep. So that's fun. It does have one- With, with, With her father right there. Yep. There's almost a subplot there that works. Very nearly. There's almost a theme there that works. Fair enough. You know, Halsey doesn't really have much of a personality in the film, so I'm okay with the fact that Roven uh, grafts onto him the idea that he's a money-grubbing fame-seeker who will go along with anybody who will bring, you know, fame and uh, fortune to Miskatonic University. So he basically tries to sell Megan off to all these professors he brings over for dinner and hopes that she will marry them and and get rich, and that's why he doesn't like Dan, even though he likes Dan. It, it's not the mind control at all. So it almost works thematically when then you have the zombie form of him, you know, looking away as his top grant winner sexually assaults her because, hey, this is the greatest scientific discovery that's ever been made. It's so upsetting, though, and it does it almost works, but it crucially – Almost is the crucial word there. So. So that's upsetting. And the one good addition to that scene is Herbert being very upset about being laser drilled. Which apparently got all halfway there because he has a hole in his head. hmm I mean, I think you can see it in makeup in the end of the scene. Mm-hmm. But it's just not focused on the way it is there, where it is in the book. Poor Herb is, is screaming about, don't take my brain, anything but that. And it's it's really upsetting. But weirdly, the version of the scene in the basement that goes with that theme is not the same. Yeah, because they weirdly leave out the mind control aspects of the basement scene, even though they've grafted back in the entire mind control plot. Mm-hmm. So the original cut of the basement scene where Herbert is being mind controlled by, by Hill, and he sheds a single tear, and then my heart breaks... And then Hill says, by the way, we have to kill your boyfriend. And then Herbert murders him. That's not the way the scene plays out. Yeah, again. It's like Roven's going out of his way to explicitly make Herbert as unsympathetic as possible. Yeah, it's not just that we have to make sure that Dan isn't gay. We have to make sure that none of Herbert's actions can be coming out of genuine affection for Dan. It's very odd. So, like. Uh, in so the- he has to be gay, but also not in love with Dan. Mm-hmm. Weird. So weird. Like, well, you know, maybe it's just that whole idea that gay emotions aren't genuine. Uh... I'm... Just... (sighs) Fucking... This guy saw Rope and took it as a very serious documentary. Like Thomas Harris? I mean... I don't know why I'm so bitter at at the fact that they... That the book doesn't include the, uh, Mind control version of the basement scene where Hill threatens to off Dan, but it's extremely upsetting. But it does keep the line where Herbert uh, Herbert says to Dan he was going to get rid of you, which but it makes it explicit that he's lying. It's uh-huh. Like he was going to get rid of you, he, he lied. lied when as it was filmed originally, that was not a lie. Yeah, in, in the film, it's more like a... Qu- it, it's it, an impetus. Yeah. It, and then when it's edited out, you know. Yeah, the, the, in the final film, it's almost like a quirk of putting together different cuts of scenes, rather than an explicit attempt to make it a lie. Not so the book. Yeah, like, there's a calculated aspect to this that's really unsavory. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of unsettling to read. It's been- so, uh, There's also the fact that Herbert's dialogue is even more unnatural in this than in the film. Mm -hmm. I join you. (laughs) I join you, Gruber! (laughs) Which is sad in theory, but also... It's sad in theory because they had that whole scene where where he affirmed that, that he and Gruber loved one another like father and son before Gruber's... Eyeballs exploded and his guts oozed out his stomach. That's that's like the one good addition for Herbert here, is the really hammering home that father-son relationship. In the midst of a bunch of autistic coding about how Herbert is bad at feel. That's and and about how saying... me feel things. Uh-huh. And like how, how saying like he's fond of somebody is a big deal for Herbert. Which, again, if you'd like played through that... Yeah. And, and made this actually about him learning the value of life before he died and then dan being the one who loses perspective and enters into the same cycle of obsessive destruction almost works a structure a theme there there is on the way to the morgue the most hilarious bit of herbert internal monologue where he reflects that after all of this is over and they defeat hill he's just going to let dan go off and do what he wants sure you will honey sure you will uh-huh <laughs> my ass sir Because, again, we can't actually say that Herbert is in love with Dan, this large, useless meat human, completely lacking in utility for Herbert at this point. He has no connections. He's not good in a fight. He's not very bright or useful for science. There's no reason to have him around except as another meat shield. And yet the prose is like, you know, Herbert liked him and enjoyed being around him, but... But, you know, he'll make a good husband to somebody. Which one? Oh, Herbert, do you want a house husband? Oh, wait, no, I'm sorry. That's not where we're going with this. He's going to just walk away from him. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> uh-huh. Herbert already has their honeymoon booked. Herbert West in the mountains. <laughs> He's a tiny little obsessive who doesn't let anything go ever if we've learned anything about him. But so the morgue fight goes down. Um, Hill's head gets crushed like an orange, you know. As happens. He he is able to get his revenge, though, by launching exploding organs all over the place. So fucking good! And um, Herbert dies in the the midst of a mess of intestines, shouting, you know, I join you, Gruber, and uh, demanding that Dan take his serum away and perfect it. And lo, he take up the mantle. And then Meg gets strangled. So all of that is basically the same, just longer and more boring, and then it gets... up a- And then we get into Dan's head during the injection scene, and it's really bad. Mm-hmm. It There's, like, a brief second where it works, where he's clearly dissociating and talking about how her hand's cold, and he has to warm it up, like, when they went skiing. Right, but but there's no tension to the scene. Yeah. The actual... I mean, w- the lack of band soundtrack, frankly, there is a huge... Mm -hmm. failing because the scene just slogs on and on as he's uh, fiddling and piddling about dosages and injects her with enough to make her explode. Like, we don't see it, but the amount he injects her with should make the entire hospital go nuclear. And so, you know, the movie ends on that one really great shot that's a fade to black as he decides to inject her. And then we see the injection power through the syringe. Not so here. No, no, she opens her eyes and screams, we are told, and then it cuts to the detective. And then Vinny Papa is real sad because of, because at first he's super satisfied because, you know. That gay did it. I knew they were gay. I was right about their gayness. I'm gonna convict the gay. And then he finds Herbert's corpse and is like, hmm, given what all's going on here, he could not have actually done this. this mass murderer. I guess he was just a victim too. I am sad because I've not found the murderer. This just put like, a cloud on my day. Right, and it's like, that put a cloud on your day? Not the mass murder. No. Just the fact that you were investigating the wrong dude. You couldn't pin the gi. <laughs> the only gi in the village? The only one. As as this novel takes care to assure us multiple times. Well, because Dan's old roommate got the fuck out of there. Wise man. What's he yeah. doing now? Not living with people who nail bats to the walls. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean i'm pretty sure that's what it what decided him <laughs> smart man comes home sees dan nailing a bat on the wall and is like you know what i'm going to dance and dan is not putting those things together <laughs> dance because dan is incapable of acknowledging guilt or fault in, in himself so well he's laser focused on finding that next sugar daddy like when he decide when weirdly he reflects on how Hill's hands make it look like he's probably a very tender lover. (laughs) What the fuck, Dan? This actually happens in text. He's just sitting in class, checking out Hill's hands on those tools, and thinking about how he fucks. The answer is on a waterbed, by the way. Of course. Okay, that one checks out, though. Yes, no, uh, of course. But yeah, Dan apparently skipped town with Meg's corpse. Mystery solved. Whether or not it was ambulatory, not. Not important. established. Yeah. But Vinnie Papa's like, gee, I guess I don't really want to know what happened after that. That seems pretty dark, man. You work in Arkham. And apparently have no unsolved cases. You're. S- I know why oh, this shit um, goes down in Arkham. And all the reanimated corpses that were in the morgue apparently wandered out and just dropped dead all over the place, so apparently the reagent only works for a short period of time in this. Th- yeah, that one is at least d- established well as a through-line, because he gets around them having to re-kill Rufus by just saying, ah, it wore off. Eh. <sighs> <sighs> Fine. Hey, hey. Remember what Rufus's uh, tissue sample label was? Herbert labeled his own toe tag L.A. Zerus, which is adorable. Nerd! But apparently, this is just a thing. As a bisexual, I'm surprised that Herbert is not bisexual with his fondness for puns. Well, you know, because uh, apparently he labeled Rufus's tissue samples arcane. Nerd! I mean, we already knew that. We did, we did it that. He is a nerd oh is there anything we didn't discuss about this book and its shittiness i mean i'm sure there is we didn't get much into the chemical plant that set a river on fire or whatever because it doesn't matter yeah because it's only present in the first half of the manuscript you know the treatment that rovin sent to the publisher and then got approved but with a much shorter deadline oh fuck oh fuck well, and he... they didn't send his whole manuscript back right well he he was busy you know writing game guides i don't need to check back on what i wrote I've got this. I can remember enough. It's fine. It's totally, it was not fine. It was super not fine. Again, this is a technically proficient work, and it's kind of fascinating to look at, to see the differences, the things you don't agree with, the ways it doesn't jive with canon, and also just sort of the mentality surrounding it. hmm Especially as a standalone work before there was a sequel. Right in the smack-dagger in the middle Of eighty seven before Bride came out in ninety, so he wouldn't have even known it was in production, and it's not like there is a PDF out there floating around. We won't link it because there are a limited number of these books in existence. So yeah, also I just don't know where it is. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but if 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 you go digging around, there is somebody scanned a PDF of it. It's a kind of interesting read. It goes pretty fast, but it's not a good book. It, it is and mostly it just of, a cultural oddity. And it's kind of super shitty. Yeah, it, it is shitty in some real specific disheartening ways. Which is why it's so unfortunate that his granddaughter found you on Twitter. I think that might be his daughter-in-law or something. But but yeah, <laughs> yeah, found me on Twitter. <laughs> I have bad news, ma'am. Your grandfather wrote a very shitty homophobic book. I'm sorry about that. Yep, what happened. I-, I was civil. You I were told very her nice. That his book is very valuable. That is true. It's true. Congratulations. Like the cast of Reanimator, he doesn't make any money from it. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, it's not like there's copies selling anymore, except among weirdos like us. Oh, any final thoughts? More Brr. Burr. <laughs> All right. So- That about wraps us up. Yeah, stick around for us. Our main podcast, we talk about movies that that are dubious and questionable. If you liked this, you can find more of our stuff on uh, SoundCloud or Stitcher. Uh, We also do more of this, where we talk about books while drunk. Yes, if you uh, find us, if you could leave us a rating or review, we really appreciate it because it helps folks find us. Uh, if you want to email us, you can find us on Treasures underscore pod at outlook.com. You can find us on social media at uh, trashandtreasurespod.tumblr.com or on Twitter at trashpod. If you uh, give us a shout, uh, say hi to us, we might give you a shout out on the show. We really appreciate All of our listeners. Especially this week, especially Gerbil Fluff. Yes, thank you for making this podcast possible. As much as we dunked on this book, we're very pleased to have it. And it looks so pretty on our shelves. Yeah, and it's just such a wonderful opportunity to actually examine existing documents. Mm -hmm. So as promised, we will get back to what we actually said we'd do next time, which is Chrome, the robot dildo book. Yeah, the dildo arms robot book. Excuse me. That's the actual cover. That That's not a Photoshop. Mm-hmm. It's a for-real book that's for-real by a gay and is gay. It's also, uh, well, we'll get into it. Yeah. All right. Well, until next time, take care of yourselves out there. See y'all.